This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Machinations, and the author is J.S. Brevin, and J.S. joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello. Hi, this is J.S. Great to have you on the show, J.S., and uh, I'm going to read a few things you've written just to set the stage for our discussion You say this, Machinations is the first book in a trilogy that follows two different worlds. One world takes place a thousand years in the future and follows Varric Vermilion, a child prodigy astrophysicist. And the other is a rural agrarian world that follows a boy, Drew, and his best friend, Angeli. Both feel out of place in the quiet farming community to which they belong and struggle to find the truth just below the surface. In a shocking twist, these disparate worlds become intertwined on multiple levels, and now the survival of both worlds may depend on the success or failure of both Drew and Varric. Well, it sounds like a, a great science fiction, twist and turns, a lot of intrigue. Why did you create this theme? And tell us a little bit about yourself, J.S. Uh, the theme? I guess one of the reasons I took these two storylines, the first one was with Eric Vermillion, the astrophysicist. I mean, I've always been fascinated by science fiction and physics, you know, like quantum theory, uh, Einstein's relativity. It's always been a hobby of mine researching that. And so I guess that's why I picked that character. And in the novel, Machinations, Varric, he was a child prodigy, so he's kind of, was basically reared by academia, uh, reared by the the institution he he worked for, and never really got to to grow up, so to speak. So when he's tenured in his early 20s, uh, he starts asking questions that most people uh, ask or go through at an earlier age and ends up leaving uh, academia in uh, in a huff. And it kind of mirrors my life a little bit because I left medicine after medical school. I uh, kind of been fed up by it, you know, all the insurance companies and all the hassle and headaches with it. And I said I was leaving and I was never coming back. Of course, I, uh, after a few years of waiting tables, I realized that... uh, my student loans weren't going to get paid by a, a, a waiter's salary, so I ended up going back to, to medicine. But in Varick's case, he leaves academia, and it's kind of like, what if? And uh, and his life, he, he leaves and, and stays gone, and his life takes some dramatic turns from there on out. And the other storyline is uh, is Drew, and his best friend Anjali, and it's a rural farming community. I actually, uh, my father owned a farm in rural Ohio, and spent a lot of time there. And uh, it was very, um, very important part of my life. Kind of look back with a fondness, and uh, I guess that was the kind of setting for that storyline. And um, yeah, as far as as what I do, I'm a I'm a psychiatrist and. Brooklyn, New York. I went back into to medicine and, uh, you know, finished it off, did my residency, my psychiatry residency at the University of Virginia, and practice now. I have a private practice in, in Brooklyn Heights, uh, New York. Yeah. <laughs> Why does Varick, in a thousand years in the future, here he is, a professor of astrophysics, and he jumps into politics. What, why does he do that? I don't know. I think it's because uh really has nothing better to do. And uh, so he's quit. And, uh, you know, at that point, he's kind of um, brought into that intrigue by 
uh, one of his best friends, Wit. And uh, there are definitely nefarious influences at work that kind of uh, draw him into politics. And uh, a little bit, I think he feels like he's going into it on his own free will. But but whether it's Wit or somebody behind the scenes, there's definitely someone pulling the strings and uh, kind of bringing it in. But Varric is... Uh, he's a bit of a narcissist, I think, and uh, thinks the world of himself. And I think the political arena, uh, uh, especially the the way I have it detailed in, in A Thousand Years in the Future, is perfect for him. And uh, it's really not so different than today. There's a lot, a lot of narcissism, I think, that goes into politics and politicians. And uh, uh, he eats it up. He loves it. He loves the adulation. He loves the women that he can get as a result of being a politician. He loves the drugs he can get as a matter of uh, being a politician. So um, it definitely fulfills a part of his life that was missing in academia. So how do they come to mingle Varric and Drew? What brings this thousand years in the future intertwined with today? With today? uh, That's kind of a... Well, we're we're treading on uh, uh, on thin water here because uh, I can't give uh, too much away right. as far as that. But the uh, you know kind of the assumption is that it's today, but it could be really at any time. The, the way I've kind of written it is you assume that you know, and it's not actually even today. I mean, it's a rural farming community that could be. 200 years in the future, I mean, in the in the past from today, it could be in the 1700s, is kind of how it's written. But uh, it doesn't necessarily take place in, in the 1700s. And, uh, you know, the whole gist of the novel is how, how they're kind of brought together. And, uh, you know, I can talk a lot about the novel, but if I get too far there, I'm going to be giving too much away. Now, you say its dialogue is gritty, like Pulp Fiction. Uh, tell us about that. Well, uh, I guess that's one of the most influential movies. Uh, besides, I also am a big Star Wars fan. That's more the science fiction part of it. And uh, there are a few parallels with, with that. There are some definite influences that the reader will pick up. But Pulp Fiction kind of just uh, came out. I was I just graduated college, uh, and when I saw it, I saw it on opening night. I mean, it got a. I mean, I was so um, gripped by it, and nobody really wrote uh, dialogue like like Tarantino did in Pulp Fiction. I had never seen anything like it. Like. Um, you know, just really gritty, down to earth, and it was just in your face. And I absolutely loved it. The uh, the opening night I saw on Pulp Fiction. I mean, it's the first movie that I was at that got a standing ovation for about ten minutes. Uh, it was impressive. Everybody loved it. I mean, I think you know, it, everybody still loves it. It's a lot of people's favorite movie. And uh, the Travolta, Samuel Jackson, they're back and forth. I mean, it's just it's classic repartee, and I think a lot of movies have been influenced by that since then, and uh, to be honest with you, I don't think Tarantino has really matched uh, what he did in Pulp Fiction, but, you know, that was definitely the pinnacle, I think, of dialogue in my mind, and um, and I wanted all the dialogue and, and machinations to be really gritty, down to earth, and just lay it out there, and I think it does. And because of your background, uh, your professional focus in psychology, psychiatry, these two characters, Drew and Varric, you really uh, look into their minds, don't you? You're really trying to give us their stream of consciousness. No punches are pulled. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I guess there's a... Well, it's a bit of a... Difficult to explain. I mean... Yes, I'm a psychiatrist, and uh, I'm supposed to know a lot about human nature and understanding people. Uh, and, you know, I've definitely gleaned things uh, from my private practice and, and uh, you know, all my education 
and definitely think that is the case. But translating that into writing a novel, I think that doesn't necessarily translate. As a matter of fact, I think it can get in the way of writing a good novel. So I guess uh, what's similar to method acting, you know, in the theater and in movies is I really had to get inside the head of these characters. Varric was easier because there are some parallels to to my life in there. And, uh, you know, so I was able to get the angst of his character. I was able to really get into that. And, uh, you know, he's really a, a tragic character. And uh, that doesn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, translate to my life. But, you know, when I left medicine, that wasn't the greatest decision in the world. And probably, uh, you know, I was on the on the edge there <laughs> of uh, uh, of pushing past that point to where Varric went. Um, so on the other hand, what I was, I'm even more kind of proud of as far as with the, the novel is uh, Drew's character, because he's a child, uh, about 10 or 11, and then as that storyline progresses, he's older, like, I don't know, maybe 17, 18. But uh, to try to get into the mind of a... Um, you know, an 11 or 12 year old, uh, that was very difficult. And, um, and the relationship between Drew and Angeli, these two adolescents. Well, I always kind of, you know, uh, Varric's storyline is more of kind of a seedier kind of storyline where there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, negativity influences beyond his control, kind of pulling the strings. But, uh, so, on the other side of the coin, Drew and Anjali's, uh, their relationship, it's kind of a pure platonic uh, childhood relationship, and they grew up in this rural area of eastern and uh, farming community, and they're traipsing about, going out and taking little adventures in the woods, and uh, I don't know, there's just, I guess, something pure about a relationship uh, between two kids at that point uh, that are really close friends and they feel kind of like they're outcasts and the, the kind of confirmation that they have or the, you know, the way they kind of make sense out of things is between the, the two of them. And they have a real strong bond. Now, technology obviously plays a very important part in this uh, futuristic world a thousand years from now, but... In the long run, you say technology really doesn't matter when it comes to human relationships and, and the human struggle. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the underlying themes of, uh, of the novel, Machinations. It's, uh, you know, it's a thousand years in the future. And I mean, the way I've told the story, you know, with the, the dialogue, the kind of stream of consciousness of both characters, uh, Varric and Drew... I'd like to think that's a really strong story that's told. And in the background is definitely the technology. But I think I did that on purpose, um, you know, because obviously it's a thousand years in the future. There is technology that, you know, is extremely advanced. But really it's about relationships and people and the relationships between the people. And, uh, you know, you can make comparisons between the two worlds, the, the rural agrarian one and the 1,000 years in the future. And, uh, you know, in the end, I don't think they're that different. And, uh, you know, that's one of the underlying themes in the, in the novel. Just a final comment. Uh, I have about a minute left now. It's also a theme of tragedy, death, and the end of the world. Oh, we only have a minute left. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, cut this one short. Uh, I don't know. I, think, I mean, that's why, you know, the Shakespearean tragedy, I think everybody kind of feels, uh, you know, it kind of resonates with people. And uh, Varric is definitely uh, a tragic character, you know, within the the novel, but you know, with uh, tragedy, there's redemption, and definitely um, there is that in the the novel too. As far as the end of the world, uh, you're not going to get all those 
not that I have all the answers, but you're not going to get all the, the answers in in the first novel. Um, you know, I haven't started writing the second and third, but more of those answers will will come out. But uh, I don't know. You write a novel, and you might as well tackle the big ones. So I definitely <laughs> did that. The title of the book, Machinations, the author, J.S. Breving. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, as far as getting my book, uh, you can find it online at uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, um, iUniverse. You know, there's quite a few sites. You can uh, Google search my first name, uh, or my, my name, J.S. Breving, and uh, it'll come up. So check it out. Uh, it's a good read. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899, 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, My Life with Rita, The Love of My Life. And the author is James Bookch. And James joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, James. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, you're going to tell us a love story, uh, your life with... Rita, your wife for 58 years, as you call her, the love of your life, and also some of the challenges, especially at the end of her life when she struggled with Alzheimer's and you took care of her for eight years, right? That's right. Obviously, an important thing to do, a a great uh, tribute to her and you, a memoir, uh, even an autobiography, uh, still difficult to write, or was it a joy? I mean, how how what was the uh, overall feeling as you were writing it? Well, uh, of course, I uh, started it after she died. Uh, one of my confederates uh, heard about uh, my many travels and how we enjoyed life together, and she she suggested, "Well, why don't you write a book about it?" So I started writing, uh, and of course, I started uh, with the beginning when I came back from World War II uh, in 1946. Rita and you got married, and you got into the natural gas business, which offered many opportunities in different companies, and Rita always flourished wherever you went. Finally, though, you decided to retire, and then Alzheimer's started to change Rita. 
pretty fast after it, retirement. It, it accelerated. Yes, uh, it, it was, and I I, I found that uh, she was uh, Rita was uh, of course wanted to be uh, see her mother, and uh, I wanted to be on the golf course. So we tried to combine the two. It was only about a thirty mile trip, so. I did allow her to, to drive the car, when, and now that I think about it, she was driving us 30 miles to see her, her mother. And uh, we finally took her to a doctor because the memory was getting a little a little worse. I would uh, leave a note tell her I was going to play golf, and we found out she was roaming in the neighborhood. And uh, she uh, had not read my notes properly. So we really got earnest. We were earnestly looking for a good doctor to find out what was wrong with her. We, uh, she, uh, several of them examined her, and we went to hospitals and whatnot. And then finally, they decided that her memory was getting worse, and uh, they were developing into dementia. Now uh, they weren't exactly sure which. Which one of the dementias, but uh, it turned out to be Alzheimer's. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, James was still on the golf course, and I, I found that she was roaming a little too much. So, I, I learned that there was a there was a place in town that you could uh, bring uh, elderly people, and they could be taken care of. By the hour, which I, which I was a little surprised at that. So I'd get up and bring her over there at eight o'clock in the morning and pick her up at noon. Uh, that only lasted a, that only lasted a, a month. When I found out that they were not making any money, and uh, I hired the the nurse who was in charge over there to take care of Rita individually at home. So uh, she, she was. This girl was absolutely. Uh, she helped me so much that I uh, and she and Rita would. Rita was able to ride in the car and whatnot, of course, and they were running around like mother and, and daughter. <laughs> That's uh, wonderful. And uh, they and I was so happy that she was there. That that went on for about uh, six months when she told me that she was gonna. A fa- their family was going on a vacation, and. Uh, she might be gone a week or so. I said, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? So I was able to find uh, a girl that lasted a little while uh, with me. But uh, this this good girl, nurse, came back from her vacation, and, and she found that uh, Rita was getting worse, and, I, uh, I, and the doctors were uh, diligently trying to help her out. So I uh, decided to start looking. Someone mentioned that, that I should take her and put her into her home. And while I thought it was a little early to put her in a home, I I listened to this gentleman, and uh, there was a brand new one going up. I went to uh, I got her and uh, got her over there, and I should have known something was very wrong with the way it was being operated and uh, it was a brand new installation and uh, they probably were not uh, acclimated to their jobs properly but anyhow they, they suggested that I bring her over to this home and leave her there and don't see her for three days and I said don't see her for three days uh, we've never been apart uh, ex- except when I was traveling overseas uh, that long and but I waited the three days out as as I went back to this uh, new place uh, where Rita was. I asked for her, and they didn't know where she was. They couldn't find her in the place. Oh, my goodness. So I started, they had a few halls and whatnot. So I heard somebody beating on a hall door. So I made a turn in the hall, and, uh, and lo and behold, it was Rita. And I looked at her, and I said, Now, what has happened to you, young lady? You look like you haven't slept since you've been here. And uh, so I put her to bed. This was on a Thursday. I put her to bed, 
and she fell asleep before I left the place. She had not slept. And uh, so that went on until Friday night. That Friday night, they called me, and they said, we're taking your wife to the hospital. I said, what happened? I said, why? What happened? I just saw her yesterday. Well, she was, uh, she had a girl, she had a nurse, uh, yeah, well, a caretaker, I think they called him. Hit her nurse, and uh, she, uh, we thought she was going wild, so we sent her to the, to the hospital. I said, what the devil are you doing selling her to the hospital? So I beat the ambulance to the hospital. And uh, as Rita's ambulance drove up, she saw me, and she waved to me. And I said, well, that girl doesn't look like there's anything wrong with her. So I... I went in with her, and of course they examined her to see what was wrong with her, and uh, they were worried about her con- condition, and so was I, uh, because she seemed normal to me. So uh, I asked the nurse, uh, after the doctor examined her, I said, how do I get her out of this place? And the uh, the, the nurse said, well, just sign this little ticket here, and uh, you can take her home. So I took her home. I didn't even go by to pick up her clothes and whatnot. That was a Friday night. So, But the next morning I went over, and uh, we took her clothes and uh, everything else, and I told her I wanted my money back and uh, all this malarkey. And uh, uh, it wasn't malarkey as far as I was concerned to treat anybody like they were treated her. So uh, we brought her home, and uh, good golly, she slept all that day, it seemed like. And, uh, but I knew I had to do something, so I found a, a, a home, a real home, that had more experience. And uh, I, I had to put her in there because uh, uh, the young lady taking care of her uh, was not, uh, well, she had a, her own family to run the two. So so I put her in this uh, this place. It was Cornerstone. I gave it another name in the, uh, in the book. And she spent two years there, and I, I documented the two years that she uh, was in there. I'd see her every afternoon uh, at 3 o'clock, and uh, we, she recognized me, so we'd go for walks and whatnot. And uh, I, uh, I could continue my golfing, but I had to see her every, every uh, day. And on the weekend, I took her home for Sunday lunch, dinner. And uh, I didn't want her to forget her home, but and she looked at her home. Uh, up. Every time she'd come, she had to go uh, kill, check some of the rooms to be sure they were still there. That lasted for two years. And I got a little tired of her being away from home. And uh, I was able to, at, while she was at this home, I was able to talk to one of the uh, the caretakers who said they could get me some help if I did take her home. And so I did take her home. She had got some help for her, and she spent the rest of her life at home when she wasn't in the hospital, which was about three, four years, almost four years. So at home, I uh, the engineer part of me came out. I said, well, if I'm going to have people helping, my wife, who is so easy to get along with, I think she should have a list of, everybody should have a list on what I expect of them. So I made out a, a list that I think would be helpful to other people because I had an hourly, I had an hourly uh, reader's day, as I called it. Uh, she uh, went to work, she went to work. So the, uh, the the people went to work about uh uh, eight o'clock every day, and uh, I had every hour of the day until uh, eight o'clock that night taken uh, written out and what I expected of them, and, uh, and uh, because uh, I she was not that sick that I couldn't play golf across the street from where I lived. So as one of the the newspaper writers wrote, he says uh, Jim was. Uh, was a very loving husband, but the one thing that he would never forget is his golfing. And uh, 
So I was always across the street where I could be called in case anything happened to Rita. But that went on until, until, let's see, uh, was in and out of the hospital. And finally, just before she died, uh, she was in there for a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, it was just the doctors had, had given up on her. But I hadn't. So, of course, I didn't want to see my wife uh, uh, 58 years ago, but in 1955, January 55, it happened to be on on my the day before my birthday. She died on the 18th of uh, January in uh, 2005, and uh, it was uh, it was a hardship on me, and uh, I. Uh, course you have to live through it right but it was uh that's when i decided i said uh, i'm going to do something about uh, the love of my life as she was and we were together so many years the 58 years i uh and it, never had an argument and uh we uh we got along so well that uh it uh i decided that with the help of someone else, uh, suggested, why don't you write a book about this? You've got all these notes and whatnot. Sure. So, uh, so I think I'm the only one who wrote a book and then t- went to a class on how to write a book. <laughs> but I had to revise it, of course, after I uh, after I got it. But uh, I, had, I took about uh, two years of, uh, of uh, how to uh, writing. Um, uh, and it was uh, it was a pleasure, and I uh, I'm sorry I didn't take it before. However, it didn't. The facts were there, and I think and the biggest thing about writing a book I find is getting the right editor, right, to correct your mistake. And uh, I will admit that uh, I um, I think there are a few little mistakes in there now uh, in in the way the book is published. But I finally decided I was gonna. Put it out for sale, and uh, uh, I'm very. Uh, I guess I'm impatient when it comes to to working, but uh, not for loving. As far <laughs> as I'm concerned, uh, this, this is a. As I said in the book, I said I think that I, my life in heaven has already been taken care of because <laughs> I don't think it could be any nicer than it was when. When Rita and I were married and living. Well, congratulations, James. Congratulations on publishing your book, My Life with Rita, The Love of My Life, uh, James Books. James, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, right now I've just taken a um, work to deal with my publisher, iUniverse, and uh, they're, they're trying to help me sell this book. I've had it for a year. And uh, I, I'll admit that I was not the salesman I thought I was. I finally hired them uh, just a, a month ago to take it over and let's 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 get the public to know something about uh, my uh, life with Rita. Uh, so I have a uh, uh, it's in the midst of things right now. Uh, they are. They have uh, come out with some other ideas, and I think they're pressing the um, the point of the Alzheimer's. Right. I might mention that they're talking about they're coming out with ads such as this: "In sickness and in health means years with Alzheimer's for a long married couple." Memoirs shares intimate look at memory robbing disease. And it shows Lafayette, Louisiana. Can a marriage last through sickness and in health? Right. Until death do they part. Well, it sounds like a great idea. Again. Sounds like a great idea. And uh, now they're pressing. Uh, and I do have a, uh, I do, I am getting a, uh, well, right now the book can be purchased at over at uh, Barnes & Noble. And other places now, there's going to be a lot more others open up. In other words, I'm going to get a, a website. Oh yes, I've sold a few books to some local people who have uh, some of their elders in 
in the same situation the reader was, and they said it's getting to help them to even have a uh, a day that you itemize, and, um, and 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 people know what you expect of them. Well, good and, job, uh, James, and we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, and uh, I'm anxious to see how this is going to come out. Can be contacted on my internet if they would like to uh, to talk to me about selling the book to them. Uh, I can be reached at books twenty two at cox dot net. That's books. Twenty two b o o k s h twenty two at cox dot net. Well, thank you, James. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Alone in My Universe, Struggling with an Orphan Disease in an Unsympathetic World, and the author is Wayne Brown, and Wayne joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Wayne. Hello. Nice to talk with you, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. This is an incredible story. You've accomplished a great deal, much more than publishing a book, and we'll get into all those details. But let me read a few things you've written about your book, Alone in My Universe. You say this, This is a man who was incapacitated by his diagnosis with a rare disease until he figured out how to rise above. He now works to help others live their lives to the max as well. And you also say this book is a collection of personal stories written from people impacted by the same rare disease, either as a patient, a loved one, or as a friend. It examines all aspects of living with and managing this rare disease through life's daily chaos. Tell us about this rare disease that you probably couldn't imagine that you would ever contract? Well, I can honestly tell you, Steve, that if you asked me what acromegaly was in 2004, the day before I was diagnosed, I would have no clue about the disease at all, much less the thought that I could possibly contract it. Uh, This disease is a rare pituitary disorder that essentially causes the overproduction of growth hormone. Uh, When you're dealing with it in a younger standpoint, if you start to suffer the symptoms when you're in high school or in 
the pubescent years, you'll often see the features known as gigantism. For those of us who, be, uh, who start to suffer the symptoms of the disease, after you get through that pubescent age where your body is in that growing modality, what you end up with is continued growth of the body, but your body cannot physically accommodate it. So you'll get larger hands, larger feet. Uh, you're, you get a severe underbite. Uh, the forehead grows, and where it becomes very dangerous is the lining of the heart will grow. While this is not a metastasizing tumor by, uh, by its very nature, the average lifespan for someone who goes untreated is about 30 to 50 years of age because of the heart problems that it can cause. A lot of people are familiar with the wrestler and, and how do you pronounce it? Andre the Giant. Andre. A lot of people are familiar with the wrestler Andre the Giant, and he had this. Yes, he did. And, yeah, as far as I know, now obviously I'm not privy to any of his medical information, but when he was first diagnosed, this was decades ago, when the treatment for the disease was far more primitive. Uh, we've been very lucky that treatment in this rare disease has blossomed in the past several years. The technology, even today in 2011, is far superior to the technology that was available when I was diagnosed in 2004. So Andre the Giant, while, you know, while he was accused of being overweight and not good to his body, and that's why he died tragically at such a young age. It was, in fact, the symptoms of the disease that gave him the heart problem. Now, you got to be a big guy, uh, as you were called. Uh, you hated walking into a crowd because people would notice your size. How big did you get? Well, I am six foot three, and at my maximum, I was 340 pounds. And since diagnosis and treatment and understanding of how this disease affects my diet and still does sometimes today, I was able to actually get my weight down to about 225 pounds. Oh, good for you. Thank you. It took a lot of work, and it takes a lot of discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, going to the gym sometimes is a near impossibility when this disease is acting up there have been times where i've gone to the gym and gotten halfway through my workout and just had to leave because the joint pain is just too much hmm. you know part of dealing with a rare disease sometimes is knowing when you can actually work past it and when you actually have to give into it and just be human well at first Doctors weren't listening to you, and as you put it, depression is common when first diagnosed with this disease. Absolutely. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why I founded this organization, Acromegaly Community, was strictly, it was not intended to be the organization that it has become. Uh, the reason that I created it was basically to look for people that I could speak with people that could relate to my issues because I was, it took me about 10 years, first of all, to get diagnosed, Steve. I was complaining to my doctor for years that I was exhausted, that I was emotionally irregular, just moody. Uh, I frequently would lose memory. I wasn't able to sleep. I had a bunch of strange symptoms that individually had no congruence but when you put them all together, if my medical doctor was familiar with the disease, could have easily diagnosed me. And the, that's why the average time span for treatment with this disease is about 10 years from first onset of symptoms until diagnosis because it's just such a strange collection of symptomology that unless you have a doctor who's well-versed in it or is an endocrinologist, will likely miss the problem. So it's not a cancer? It is not a cancer. In fact, in throughout the hundreds of people that I've talked with throughout our acromegaly community, I think I know of one or possibly two people where 
the disease actually had a cell break off and mutate into a metastasized cancer. Now, you wanted to find a support group, but you couldn't find one, so you did the next best thing. It was totally unintentional. <laughs> I, I, I remember I was diagnosed, and the first place I went to, because I was looking for a support group, my friends and my family are awesome, and I love them, and this book really is a tribute to our friends and family who are there to support us. However, there's something about having a disease of such magnitude that really you need to talk to someone who's walked the same road that we're traveling. So the first place I went was I called one of the local medical institutions uh, looking for a support group for people with uh, head tumors. And so they sent me to this uh, brain cancer support group. I walked in there. And within five minutes, I knew I was in the wrong place because it was filled with people who were literally dying from cancer. And ironically, the fact that I wasn't dying, the fact that I was so much healthier than these people threw me into so much of a deeper depression because, once again, I was looking for someone to talk to who could relate to my story, and I was left on my own. So I went to the Internet, and there was little to no support. So I just started out by creating a social networking group on MySpace just for people to talk to. Acromegaly Community. Actually, at the time, it was Acromegaly Support. That was on uh, MySpace. And then when Facebook started to grow in Dynamics, then we created Acromegaly Support over there. And then after we decided to create the website, because Acromegaly Support was taken, we went with acromeglycommunity.com, and it's just been wonderful ever since. And how many hits do you get a month? Oh, golly, uh, it varies. Uh, there, during the winter months, we're far busier than during the summer months. Uh, what I always tell my members is that the, por- the purpose of our organization is to be there when you need us. Yeah, it's not uh, a 9-to-5 job, as you put it. Oh, golly, not at all. Uh, but you know what? It's not... For some of our members, they are very independent, and they really don't want to think about their disease at all. It's just, it's an adjunctive part of their lives. To some of our members, they visit our website probably more than they visit any other website. And you know what? That is wonderful for both people because the purpose of our organization is not to sit around and wring our hands and bemoan our lives. It's to really celebrate our lives and work past our disease as a team. And you also set up an actual face-to-face meeting for uh, fellow patients. Yes, we did. I'm so proud of this. And we have a lot more in the works, but Acromegaly Community had our first national convention, actually international convention, because we had people there from Canada as well as from the Far East uh, who attended this meeting. And that was back in May of 2011, just this past May. And we actually tripled our initial attendance goals. And as we work on 2012, we've had people from two or three other continents saying they definitely want to be there as well. The, the phenomena of our organization, the phenomena of this book, is that what I like to tell people is it shrinks the circle. Uh, It it makes lonely people feel less lonely. And the great part about this book, Alone in My Universe, is that everyone who has read the book, and I mean people who come from every background, from all sorts of different medical situations, including addiction issues, have read the book and said, wow, that book really spoke to me. Here's why. And the cool part is, is everyone who's read the book who's come to me with something that particularly spoke to them, they've told me a different part of the book, which tells me that there's something in there for everybody. So you have stories from 12 different acromegaly patients. Uh, We actually have 12 stories from individuals that told their whole story, that really bore 
deep into their souls, and they did a wonderful job. And it's really a credit to them because the people who wrote in this book really sacrificed any sort of personal space, any sort of family secrets. Many of them were divulged in the book. I can tell you personally that in my chapter there are numerous things that the clo- I had my closest family members come to me and say, wow, I never knew that. And it's funny because without exception, every time I talk to a patient and they read the book, they come back to me and say, your book spoke to me. I really appreciated this, 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 and this. Every time I talk to a family member of a patient, I get the same response. Wow, I had no idea. It's funny, at the end of our convention, even my sister who has, uh, and I appreciate her so much because she's really been by my side through thick and thin of all of this, she came to me after the convention and said, now I really get it. And this is someone who's seen this organization grow from absolutely nothing into an organization where we have members on six different continents. And now you're the full-time director. Yes, I am. And I am so very proud of what we're accomplishing and what we're going to accomplish. Our charity is less than a year old, and already our impact is being felt throughout the medical community. And I know you don't like to bring a lot of attention to yourself, but we must uh, salute you, Wayne. You were honored as graduate of the last decade at the college you graduated from. Is it Damon College? I am very proud of that, yes. It's Damon College, D-A-E-M-E-N College. It's in Snyder, New York, uh, a nice little su- suburb of Buffalo. And when I, went, when I went to the college there, while I did graduate with a history education degree, it really... It was my time there that taught me a lot of the skills that actually became valuable as far as being the director of this organization, as far as working with other people. And really, that's where I started to develop my leadership skills, because I was so involved with so many different school programs and uh, so many different academic programs that I started to learn how to be able to lead in a fashion that people were willing to follow. The title of the book, Alone in My Universe, Struggling with an Orphan Disease in an Unsympathetic World, and the author is Wayne Brown. Wayne, tell us how to get your book. Well, right now you can get it, you can go directly to our website at Acromegaly Community, I'll spell that for you, A-C-R-O, M as in Mary, E-G-A-L-Y, Community, Dot com. Uh, you can also get it from Amazon. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. And we even, like everyone else, have a Facebook page. And that's facebook.com backslash alone, A-L-O-N-E, dot book. Alone dot book. Well, fantastic, Wayne. Thanks so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. An incredible story. And congratulations on all that you're doing. Thank you so very much. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.